Dr. Ariana Passenseiner. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Hi, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, it's been a while since we last spoke. The last time we spoke, we did an interview on Twitch for my science stream there. And you were doing, I think it was a, um, a postdoc out in California. Is that right? Yeah, I've been in California for three and a half years. Right, and now you're back in Austria. Exactly. <laughs> so I just returned during the um, Corona pandemic, which was quite interesting. But yeah, I've 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 been here now since uh, uh, end of July, and have, yeah, I'm starting cool. again, rebuilding and and reconnecting to people. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be weird to move during a pandemic. Yeah, it's it's coming with its own challenges, I think. But in the end, it wasn't as bad as we thought, <laughs> really. Um, everything went really smooth. Um, no big problems or uh, no big things that happened during the travel. But you, of course, had to prepare in a different way, as you would probably normally do. Yeah, yeah I bet. I bet. Now, you... Uh... You really, you have some fun research that you do. Uh, you are specialized in researching fat cells. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, they can be my, my best friend and also my biggest nightmare, I think. So depending on, on how the experiments in the lab go. But... And just, just so that people know, you're not a medical doctor, you're a biochemist, right? Yeah, I'm a biochemist by training, so i I'm not treating any people. I cannot give any advice. I can just like I can interpret papers and yeah, and and say what scientists before me and colleagues uh, are researching and how this makes sense. Yeah. Okay, so let's dig right into it. Uh, first of all, let's start with the very basics. I'm curious to know what exactly uh, are fat cells and what do they do in our body. Yeah, so I mean, everybody knows this belly fat, or not everybody, but most people have a little bit of belly fat or a little bit of fat where they don't want it, I guess. So you kind of know what fat is. Um, but fat cells are the cells that accumulate or that store this um, fat that comes from nutrition, from, from the food that you eat. And... Um, they're quite important for the body because they also insulate organs. And um, apart from that, from this being a fat storage, they can also release hormones, which regulates the body's metabolism. So um, if a fat cell, for example, gets sick, that makes your whole body sick. Um, and as long as the fat cell is healthy, I mean, it's actually also a good thing that it can take up fat because the fat if it doesn't get stored it can also make your body sick so i mean fat cells are actually good guys but yeah if they are having to store too much of the fat because you eat too much so your energy consumption exceeds your energy um um uh exceeds the energy con uh, consumption uh, the, the energy intake exceeds your energy energy consumption then fat cells grow and that leads to a whole bunch of problems so this is also what i'm going to study 
have a quick question about that. Can, um, cause we, we frequently hear that people have a slow metabolism. First of all, is there such a thing as a slow metabolism? Well, I mean, your metabolism is controlled by a lot of different things. And, um, I mean, a slow metabolism, you might be able to say so because also genetic factors control your metabolism. And if your genetics kind of predispose you to having a, I would say, under um, close a slow metabolism, then yes, this might also be true. But in general, um, I would say it's more like a ratio between your fat content and your muscle content. Muscles are burning energy. And if you have a lot of um, trained muscles, they burn a lot of energy also. Uh, and fat cells are more like the storage cells, as I already said in the beginning. So they kind of slow down your metabolism. They're not, they're not made for burning. They're made for storage. And so if your ratio between your fat and your muscle mass is like in the in the wrong balance then yeah you you could probably say you have a slow metabolism but usually that's not the reason for becoming obese i would say right and and that's one of the things that i like to do on this show is you know i had an immunologist on the show the mm -hmm. other day and uh you know we talked a lot about popular misconceptions about the immune system especially right now during a pandemic i mean it's kind of crazy the kinds of assumptions that people have about how the immune system works and all that stuff mm -hmm. so i'm really curious uh, and because you're a researcher and you know fat cells really well i mean that's your specialty you you're probably very well acquainted with some of the myths and the misconceptions around fat and for me the big the big thing is you know hearing stuff like i have a slow metabolism well i've i've always been curious to know well is that such a thing and if not then what is um you know what causes fat cells to to become essentially i don't i don't want to say out of control because that's probably incorrect as well but what causes people to become obese is there is there is something that that is really an, as, an easy, as easy as saying they're eating too much or are there genetic factors? Are there uh, viruses that can cause uh, obesity? Like what, what, what would you say are like the top three reasons people gain uh, a lot of weight? Well, I mean, you've mentioned two of them. Uh, it's if you eat too much and then also uh, if you don't move enough, I mean, again, you you become obese because your energy consumption or your energy intake, the the food that you that you eat, exceeds what your body can burn. And if your body cannot burn the energy, it needs to be stored somewhere. It's like energy gets in, and I yeah, either it's burned or it's it's gonna go somewhere, and it's um basically going into these fat cells and and fat cells are crazy uh dynamic they can blow up four times their size and store that and they're mainly built out of fat and little else i mean there is a little bit of a of a cell nucleus and a little bit of of other organelles in the cell but mainly it's fat um what else can make you obese is, of course, also your genetics. 
so it's usually coming from a family history. If your family suffers from, uh, or a lot of people in your family suffer from obesity, you're probably also more predisposed to develop obesity in some time in your life. So you have to be more careful um, uh, and look out. Then also the energy content of our food changed in the last decades, I would say. It's a lot more energy dense than it used to be. Uh, there's a lot more fat and there's a lot more sugar in it. And also this high fructose, high glucose, um, corn syrup is really, really bad for you. Um, and people don't realize that. I think they don't realize how energy dense their food is and how much more they would have to move to burn this type of energy that they actually consume. And also our lifestyle has changed. So we are much more sedentary than, before, than we used to be decades before. Um, also, our transportation changed. I mean, everything is much easier accessible. You just take your car and you go to the city and you don't really have to move a lot. You're having a job where you sit on your, on your, in front of your uh, computer most of the time. So also that doesn't burn a lot of energy. And all those factors accumulate and and all of them together cause obesity. and. That's why it's a very uh, multifactorial disease. So not just one um, factor causes this disease. It's a lot of factors playing together. So is obesity considered a, a disease? Yes, definitely. It's, ah. it's not some... Uh, so I think this is probably a misconception uh, that is that I would go against in society that Obesity is just something that people are, that are too lazy or people that are uh, not having their life under control develop. It's, it is a disease that is uh, caused by a lot of factors. As a lot of them are preventable, like higher energy consumption or also the sedentary lifestyle. But um, I think you could probably... The easiest to compare it is addiction to food. And since addiction is also considered a disease, addiction to food should also be considered a disease. Because it changes also circuits in your brain where you cannot, you, your body needs this type of energy, or it at least tells you that it needs this type of energy. And so uh, this is the part of obesity that can also be treated or that um that scientists try to find drugs against this kind of addiction is there is there a solution on the market though for food addi food addiction well nothing that works so far it's also a very complicated topic as uh as you might think i mean it's not it's not as easy as it sounds to have like one pill and then you get slim you have to um, fight this disease from different angles. And most importantly of all is still a lifestyle change. So you have to, um, yeah, you have to get rid of this addiction to, to get rid of 
to change the circuits in your brain that um sport is a good thing and that i and moving is is giving you also this um satisfaction that usually you only get out of food uh so yeah it's definitely there is no one pill solution for this and there probably will never be but it's still something that um research is being done on yes and it's it's so interesting that you know i recognize myself when you're when you're talking about food addiction because uh you know my my entire family my entire family line has you know some some obesity issues and my partner and i w- would joke because i trace my ancestry uh you know to the north of france which is very heavy on cream and butter and you know all of these kind of like larger women who uh you know who do very well in the winter time let's say um so i guess there there is a genetic component then if you come from a, a long line of of you know women who were rather large and you know whose bodies were adapted for being rather large you're you're really going to have to fight harder right i mean you're going to have to uh like you said really fight against everything that your body is almost programmed to do yeah yeah i mean have you have you heard about epigenetics yes is, yeah so i mean this is the, the imprinting of your dna it's kind of uh if you if your dna is uh is your cook is a cookbook then uh the epigenetics are like um post-it notes in this cookbook that give you extra information about the recipes so uh and this is handed from one generation to the next generation and so yeah it could also definitely be that um epigenetics is something that predisposes you to um just having a little bit more trouble to uh to keep your body weight because some genes are uh just like made more than others uh, or the other way around and this influences your whole body metabolism so yeah you're right it's it's often hard to tell which which genes exactly or it's almost impossible to tell but a family history of obesity definitely gives you a harder start (laughs) In, in yeah, life. it it definitely does, and it, it's very frustrating when your friends can eat all the the sweets and the desserts that they want, and, and yeah, you, you you have to be a little bit more careful. Not that you can't. I think that there is a an extreme uh, with any with any topic like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are always extremes, and then the other thing is uh, people. There's a societal factor, right? I mean, people succumb to marketing and advertising, and like you said, less and or or the you said that the food is too energy dense is that correct yeah yeah it's very energy dense but um i'm i'm really glad that you mentioned that because the socioeconomic factor so i mean that's basically the factor that uh comes from where you live and in which uh um wealth you're living is also affecting obesity development a lot so i mean people that are coming from uh, low-income co- um, countries are usually more prone to develop obesity later in their life because it's just if you think about it you go into a store and 
and what are the what is the cheap food that you can buy i mean it's i don't know exactly the prices of course but uh a can of coke costs nothing but then a can of of, of juice of real i mean it's probably not the, the right comparison but let me get that get give you another one uh let's do it with um fruits and and chips i mean you go into the store and you have a bag of chips which costs nothing and then uh a bag of apples costs maybe three times as much. Uh, so what are you going to buy? Um, of course, this doesn't make you full. I mean, the chips and, and the apples would probably be a better option for snacking. But in the end, you still probably go for the chips. And especially if you have less money, uh, you're not buying this three times more expensive bag of apples if you need some extra snacks or something like that uh and i'm still not happy with my with my example but you get the point i guess <laughs> yeah but it also leads me to, i guess to the next question which is um if i have two types of food so let's say mm -hmm. a bowl of oatmeal and mm -hmm. um, a bowl of chips and yeah. let's say if we measure the same it's the same calories does it mm -hmm. affect the fat cells the same way uh no actually it doesn't uh so i mean it's also the composition of the food uh in in the bag of chips you have a lot of fat and a lot of like fat that so you mean you have the same same amount of calories right yeah yeah so let's say you have a bowl same... of chips and a bowl of oatmeal yeah i mean the same same amount of calories uh, should be handled by your uh, body the same way um because it's calories is calories uh but usually this amount is a lot less in the chips so it's probably more likely that you eat the same amount of oatmeal and the same amount of chips and then of course the chips have a lot more calories in the end um yeah it's uh it's a, it's, that's a good question. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's, it's one of the things that, um, it's actually something that I see a lot of people asking about, which is like, yeah. well, you know, can I eat like the same calories and does it affect my fat cells the same way? And I don't know if science even has an answer for that. Uh, yeah, I mean, yes, it does in certain types of food. I mean, for example, uh fructose or the this high fructose high glucose um syrup is is somehow making your cells more sick than other nutrients and people try to understand why this is the case uh it probably is because it activates different it activates the cells in a different way uh so yeah to understand what it causes in the cells that's what um, researchers do in the lab so okay. you are right but i can't give you specific examples about those things right now so yeah yeah that's what i was curious about i was i was like is there something you know maybe that inside the like you said like a specific ingredient especially manufactured things i was I oh assume. yeah i mean there are these trans fatty acids did you do, did you hear about those of They're, course yeah i mean they are definitely it's, it's something that is not occurring in in natural food 
in a uh, in a large amount, but it's occurring in processed food. So this is definitely something that is more toxic to your cells than a normal occurring um, fatty acid, a normal occurring fat. Um, so yeah, I processed food and high content of uh, also salt and fat and sugar, they're always more, um, yeah, worse for your body than something like oatmeal that contains a lot of fiber. And uh, yeah, and, and the fiber is also influencing your gut microbiota that is the bacteria that live in your in your stomach or not in the stomach in your intestine <laughs> uh it it influences these differently so the oatmeal is definitely more and um, healthier it's better for you <laughs> it's better for you it's healthier than the chips in any ways um but i'm glad that we kind of dis- depicted those two foods <laughs> although i it took a while. <laughs> but <laughs> no, it's a I really mean, good question. I like your question a lot. I, I'm very curious. Again, it's 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 one of those things that I'm because because I come from a family of especially women uh, who are obese um, or at least you know overweight. Let's say uh, you know it's it's always it's always like for myself. I'm always trying to cut through the you know the the bullshit essentially you know surrounding uh food and nutrition and fat so yeah. that's why i ask these questions because i'm like you're you're an expert in fat cells so i might as well well i'm an expert in fat cells i'm not a nutritionist so i mean True. i might still say uh things that so my sister she is a nutritionist and she might be like ah oh, come on why didn't you know that <laughs> or why didn't you say that better than that so I, I don't know about um yeah. so so then why don't you tell us what what is exactly your specialty and, and I know it's probably going to be very specific and scientific but if you could maybe say it in a way that you know people who aren't scientists can understand exactly what your specialty is <laughs> Well, I mean, what we already discussed, I, I'm, I'm looking into how fat cells develop. So uh, there's a certain program in the cells that need to run uh, for them to become, like to get from a normal cell or from a cell that does not contain fat to a fat cell. Um, so this is one of the things that I study. But then also I study the consequences of obesity, which is diabetes, for example. Um, so I, I'm just trying to, to see which factors do influence, uh, the development of, uh, of those diseases. And we do it in the lab that we have those factors that eventually, or that we, um, we think that they might have big, uh, influence on these processes. And then we um, hinder these factors in either genetic ways or we have um, drugs that we can use about, um, against it. And then we look into do fat cells still develop or um, if it is in an organism, do, does this organism uh, still develop diabetes? Uh, and um, yeah, so this is 
basic research in a way. Uh, so you try to understand how the basic processes um, occur. And uh, yeah, this is... Okay, so I have to ask now, when it comes to diabetes, uh, which is such a major problem in North America, mm-hmm. and uh, I know that it tends to run in the families, and mm-hmm. at least type 1 anyways, because type 2, I don't believe, has that many. Wait, so let, let, let's go back here. Does type 2 also run in families? Yes, it does. I mean, my, does. my grandfather, my grandfathers both had type 2 diabetes. Um, and, and again, I have a bigger chance to develop type 2 diabetes than a person that has no cases of type 2 diabetes in their family. So I have to be a little bit more careful and how to be a little bit more aware that I, I don't um, gain too much weight or that I, uh, I, I, I stay active. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it does run in the family as, it, uh, as all of these metabolic diseases unfortunately do. Um, but it's only one factor. Again, if we, if I know that, I can stay healthy by just doing the right things, eating um, healthy food, and um, and having enough physical activity. So just because it runs in my family doesn't need, mean that I need to develop it later in my life. Which is interesting because in my case, we don't have any history of type 1 or or type 2, uh, mm-hmm. as far as I know, anyway. And so I always wonder, like, oh, you know, do I have to work as hard <laughs> because uh, it's not in the family? But it can be, diabetes is something that can develop yes. uh, because of other factors other than genetic, right? Yes, exactly. And one of the biggest factors is obesity. So um, overweight and obesity. It's like, yeah, it's it's one of the biggest factors for type two diabetes. Hmm. And what what is your so, what has your research shown in regards to the relationship between fat cells and and diabetes? Well, obesity causes insulin resistance, which means that your body is not responding to the insulin it produces anymore. And insulin is this hormone that is very important that the organs in your body take up glucose from, from the bloodstream. So if, if they get resistant, which means they just, they just doesn't, uh, don't respond to insulin anymore, they get resistant to it, you develop diabetes. So yes, um, and insulin resistance Parts also in fat tissue and obesity makes fat tissue sick. So fat tissue cannot take up the glucose it should. And that's how it's causing also diabetes amongst other problems or amongst other consequences in other organs in the body. Okay. And so is this what we would consider as a form of inflammation? Right. I mean, fat cells get inflamed um, when they are obese or fat tissue gets inflamed because fat cells can only blow up and take up lipids and fat to a certain degree. And, And even during this process, they already start struggling 
and some of them start dying. So immune cells come to get rid of these dying cells. And that again leads to a, a cycle of um, bad processes that are running in your fat tissue uh, that influence the development of insulin resistance. It's so fascinating to me how how the body just reacts. It's almost like a ticking time bomb almost, you know, like, and, and have, have you found through your research, like, at what point this happens? Is there like a threshold that it has to pass? Do you know what I mean? Do, by, by... do you mean a threshold to develop ins uh, insulin resistance and, and diabetes? Uh, or... The way I'm understanding it, based on how you're exp you've explained it, is mm -hmm. that the cell becomes inflamed, the cell mm -hmm. then dies, the immune system comes and fetches it, and then somehow that involves the pancreas. Yeah, I mean, the pancreas, so um, it's like a, a communication between organs in your body all of the time. So it's not just the fat tissue and the pancreas, it's also the brain and the liver or the, the muscles that are all kind of in communication with each other. So if you have an imbalance in this metabolism in one organ, it also influences other organs. So it's kind of a domino effect. Um, and, and often it's, it's also difficult to say where it comes from, but it's an interplay between all those organs. And um, yeah, if if one of them is not working fine anymore, the other ones have to work even harder, and that makes them again sick. And it's it's a bad circle. Yeah, it is. You know, one of the things we talked about briefly again when when I had a, a podcast with an with Dr. Brian Height, who's an mm -hmm. immunologist, is is inflammation. I couldn't believe like. The effects of inflammation, I think, are even understated uh, in media, in in school. Uh, mm -hmm. I would imagine that for you, inflammation is a very serious uh, red flag. Yeah, definitely. I mean, inflammation is um, not only a problem in, in obesity, uh, but it's also a problem. You, you've heard of heart disease or cardiovascular disease, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so that's inflammation in your arteries and they're sometimes caused by obesity or even often caused by obesity. Uh, so inflammation in your body and especially chronic inflammation, which means that the inflammation is not resolved. So it doesn't go away. That's a bad thing. So, um, that means that you, you don't really, you don't feel anything bad. You, you don't feel worse than, I mean, if you're really sick and you have a really full-blown inflammation in your body, you feel bad. You're, you're sick, you're young, you probably have fever, but this low chronic inflammation, you can't feel, but it's there. So that means your immune system is always alert. It's always on, on a, an activated state. It's always like looking for some threat. And unfortunately, this being this alertness also leads 
to uh, destruction of, of sometimes healthy tissue. And, um, and also to have some, some type of, of uh, yeah, of, of negative consequences on a, on a lot of, of, of different angles. So it's just your immune system is kind of crazy all the time. <laughs> It is. And it's it's just interesting because it impacts, you know, obesity as well. Uh, stressors mm -hmm. like uh, lack of sleep, you know, oh, yeah, not, not enough sleep. And, and all of a sudden you're, you're gaining weight. Yeah. I mean, this is this is also one of the factors that is probably underestimated. Um, shift work is, uh, is a big factor in uh, in all these diseases, also heart disease, heart disease and obesity. Um, is often seen in shift in in people that are uh, doing shift work because the body's metabolism is also directed by uh, a rhythm and this rhythm is called circadian rhythm uh, which basically means that it has this uh, type of 24 hour circle a cycle which is guided by outside light it's, it's guided by the sun and the very fascinating thing to me, I mean, I, I'm a little bit fascinated by the circadian rhythm, is that every single cell in our body has an inside clock, which kind of runs in this 24-hour um, circle. Um, and for shift workers, this clock is often disrupted. And that shifts your metabolism in, I would say, from a... a from a storage phase to a consumption phase and the storage phase again in a way where it shouldn't be. I mean, it's, it should be in a, in a, cons uh, in a, in a stage where it, it burns the fat, but it's actually in people have to work during a phase. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's just confusing the whole um, clockwork in your cells and the, the whole clockwork in your body. And that's often the reason also for uh, a development of a metabolic disease. You, um, metabolic disease, what, uh, so what, what does those in include? I know that it includes, uh, I guess, diabetes is a metabolic disease. What mm -hmm. other metabolic diseases are, uh, you know, influenced or, uh, that influence uh, fat cells. Yeah, heart disease is one of it. Um, also, uh, there is a metabolic kidney disease, so uh, it's it's often uh, caused by obesity. It's often caused also by diabetes. But sometimes, also, if the kidneys get sick, they can also influence other types of diseases. And then, uh, metabolic diseases, of course, also obesity. Yeah. So everything that influences your uh, body's metabolism. And really quickly, uh, last question about fat, and then we'll get to other topics, is uh, what is the difference between fat burning and fat storage? Are, is, are there cells that do the burning? Yeah, there are. Um, there are specialized fat cells that are called brown fat cells, and they uh, do some burning. Um, they are mainly found in babies, uh, 
because babies have to keep their body temperature and they have a lot surface for their body size and so they lose also a lot of heat and so the body has generated this cool system where they can actually generate their own heat to a certain degree and these are these brown fat cells so uh, for a long time in, in research, they have been thought as the holy grail in obesity control. Um, because if we could activate normal cells, normal fat cells to become brown fat cells and they start burning fat instead of storing it, that would be, of course, ideal to fight these diseases. But the reality doesn't look as easy as it might sound. So you cannot just activate. Um, fat cells in your body to become brown fat cells. Um, although in experiments, this of course has been done. Uh, and the other thing is that in, in uh, human adults, we don't have a lot of those brown fat cells. We do have them, but uh, they kind of get lost after your, your baby. Uh, so yeah, but they're pretty cool, to be honest. I, I really like to, to look at them also under the microscope. They look very cute. <laughs> and, and they are fascinating cells because they're really, really specialized in this heat producing versus um, storage uh, function. So is it incorrect then when you see something like an advertisement that says burn fat or, you know, burn, burn this, burn that. It's all, it's all a bunch of crap, right? Yeah. I mean, I would say yes. In most cases it is. Uh, I mean, you can, of course, increase your metabolism. You, what we talked about in the beginning that you, um, that your body just consumes more energy in certain ways. But I think the best ways to do so is still uh, physical energy, uh, physical activity, and also a healthy diet where you just don't have as much uh, that much energy in, in, in the healthy diet. You have fibers, you have... Um, fresh ingredients um all those things uh i would not trust any of those advertisements <laughs> if if i wouldn't see the science behind it i mean let's say frankly if it is really proven that it works i mean why not trying but most of those things are just fake right yeah yeah <laughs> it's, uh, it's snake oil <laughs> marketing yeah uh, exactly. so I have to ask you you know one of the things I've learned from a lot of friends who have done their PhDs whether it's in science or history or whatever is that they've always had some sort of a uh, personal connection with the the topic that they've specialized in otherwise it it wouldn't keep your interest for very long I don't think mm -hmm. uh what is your personal connection to this research well I think my personal connection are maybe really my grandparents because um, they ha they suffered from diabetes. I mean, most of my adult life, and I've I've seen how that affects them, how that affects their um, daily routine because they had to measure insulin levels and then they had to inject themselves with um, with insulin. So 
they were all like really dependent on this uh on this on this things and and i'm sure that it made the life harder um so that's definitely one personal connection that i have and i'm just naturally curious i mean i mm-hmm. i like to think so, I, I like to know how things in our body work and um Graz, the city where i did my university studies it's uh, very specialized on on all this obesity research and and fat cell research and also uh how fat cells work what they do what are the the um, different factors that influence it so it it came naturally that i started with fat cells and then i got very very um interested in understanding how they work further because it's it's really fascinating and it's such a important topic to work on because it's just affecting so many people in the world um i've read a fact uh that since 1975 the cases in obesity tripled and uh and and this it's just killing so many people every year that yeah i, I just think it's it's really important topic for it me. is it, it, it's exceptionally important and and for me what i find even you know as a as as the podcaster as as a person who's who's asking the questions is because i see the other side of things which is all the myths and the misconceptions and yeah that gets so much more playtime than the actual science sometimes, you know, like, so I think it's so wonderful that you're studying this topic that you're doing it, you know, like you said, for, because you had a a personal connection, but also out of curiosity, which is what I think will make it so that it lasts even longer. Right. You have to have the curiosity as a, as a student and as a scientist, is this something that, um, it's something that that will allow you to just keep going. Do you do you enjoy being? I guess I guess I I know the answer to this, but I would assume that you enjoy being a scientist. Oh yeah, I I definitely do. I mean, I I like this uh, um, figuring out stuff, and and you never know where it leads you. I mean, you follow up a lead, and it, of course you. It, it could mean that you find that you figure something out, but often you get new questions rather than answers. Uh, and I mean, it's it has some. It's kind of cool to also have this first question, and then uh, you realize, oh, but there's all these other questions now that need to be answered too. <laughs> I mean, it's cool and it's daunting and it's uh, also often very depressing to be honest, but, <laughs> but yeah, it's this, it's, it's this vast majority. It's this vast um, amount of, of knowledge that we can never really figure out completely. So there will always yeah. be an open, an open question in the end. And, uh, and something that we can still follow up. There will never be all the answers to everything. And I think that makes science really cool in a way. Uh, at least for me, it does, because it's, there's still something new to figure out. <laughs> yeah, Every it's time. Um, and, and the patience. 
the the patience, the long term thinking, I think, is what makes a scientist different from somebody who perhaps isn't suited to become a scientist is is the ability to just be patient. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely something that every scientist needs for in and and then also not only being patient, but only also being um, a little bit tolerant to uh, yeah, to bad things that happen <laughs> to frustration. Uh, so if you're not if you're not frustration tolerant, it's probably also not the job, the right job for you. And this is True. probably also something where I, I'm sometimes, I have to say I'm struggling with this frustration part of, of science. Um, the curious, the curious things that they, that's what gets me, but then there's often a long stretch of, uh, of this having to be very, very patient to get to the next point. And yeah, this can be hard. Yeah. We, uh, we spoke, um, well, essentially, we brought up the topic of imposter syndrome uh, mm-hmm. at some point, you and I. And because you also, for me, I, I, br- I try to bring it up as often as I can, because for two reasons, I find that there's a link between the sci- science and the arts. And mm-hmm. in the arts, imposter syndrome is so normal. It's so, so common. Um, and then I, I learned recently, though, that it's also very common in academia. Oh, yeah, it is. It, it's really, really. I mean, it's very common. And I've heard something in on Twitter. Uh, I saw that a couple of weeks ago and that kind of stuck in my mind. It's like the more you know, the less, uh, the, the, the more you know, the more you realize how little you know. <laughs> and I think that's probably why imposter syndrome even grows the farther you get in your career. Um, at least I can tell from from people that are in the same stage of career like I am that imposter syndrome is definitely a thing because you think that you should know things already because of your like like year long experience and and all the reading that you're doing and and then you don't know it because people are not made to um remember everything or simply probably you haven't read read about it so there is no such thing as you have to know everything but often scientists think that they are supposed to to know everything at least what when it comes to their field and so imposter syndrome is definitely something that destroys a lot of uh good scientists also if it is overboarding um because they they are never satisfied with what they they're doing and what they accomplished and and they always think that there's someone someone out there that knows it better than them, which is probably true. But I think even this person that knows that better thinks the same again. So, yeah, hmm. I mean, we always think that we are not suited to do the thing that we actually doing. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's such a phenomenon that I think, uh, and I think it's under discussed. I think. Uh, yeah. 
you know, I think everybody knows it, but nobody wants to talk about it because nobody wants to admit to feeling it uh, as though it's somehow going to decrease their value if they admit that they feel like a charlatan, you know? Yeah, Uh, it's it's really... um... Yeah, it's very interesting because in the in the beginning of your studies, you think, oh, my God, all those people, they know so much. And then you're at this stage, you know, and you think, oh, my God, all these other people, they know so much. And I don't. <laughs> so um, it never really ends. <laughs> it's kind of crazy, but I guess we should all be more proud about ourselves and I think so. I think so. And and um, another thing I wanted to bring up, because it's something that I see a lot on your Twitter account, is that you do art. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've always yeah. done art. Uh, I think that's... Uh, I have to thank my mom for that. She was an art teacher or she's an, an hand, um, she, a crafting teacher, let's say like this. And so she always let us do all those things at home. We were crafting all the time or painting or doing other stuff. And and so she fostered that very early. And then I also had, or I actually have, my best friend who is, he, she is just so creative. And, and so she, she became my best friend. And so I was in this position where I, I was... I had to do something, you know, she was painting all the time. So I painted too, (laughs) (laughs) kind of keep up with her. I was never that good, but I just realized that creativity is a really, really important part of, uh, of my life. And that's why I also try to incorporate it now more into my, into my career. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm doing a little bit of science art, I would say, or I started with it. But what I also really want to do is communicate science through art. Uh, so, and communicate science in general, because uh, this is where I can put all, both my parts together, this cre- creative part and the curious part. And I can, yeah, I can merge that. And, and I think that's a good fit for me. It's so beautiful. There is, There is, I think, really... And this goes back to the beginning of our our talk, which is there's a connection between the curiosity in science and the curiosity in the arts. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Did you, do you find, do you feel the same way when you're exploring something, something scientifically as when you're painting? Yeah. I even, I even sometimes have that more if I'm painting or crafting. So I've already tried a lot of techniques and a lot of different uh, things in crafting. And every time I see, uh, like, uh, if I approach a project, I, I, my, my, my brain starts already going wild of how could I accomplish that? Which materials do I need? How do I put them together to kind of get this result? And there's a lot of um, same thinking in science as well, although it's not as easy to um, to put into uh, um, probably words or into action as it is in, in, in crafting, because you, yeah, in the end in crafting, what I like is you have a product and in science, it's often um, 
a little bit more difficult to show because your product is often just numbers on the page. <laughs> and uh, but the, the the thinking process is is often similar. You have this problem, and then you try to find the things that you need to uh, approach this problem. And I really do think that scientists can learn a lot of uh, of the of from artists in this creative process thinking. And the other way around, I think also artists can learn a lot from scientists. So I I, I really do think that this liaison between scientists and artists can be very fruitful. Um, I've done this workshop together with a performing art department in science communication. And I was just fascinated how um, performing artists um, approach communication and and how to communicate science in a way that is very different from how scientists sometimes do but uh but yeah it also made me realize how we can learn from each other in this way yeah i think so i really do i really think that there's a, a bigger link to explore between scientists and artists oh yeah I really, really do. Uh, so I'm thrilled that you're doing this kind of work. What is your, uh, what's your long-term uh, objective? What is the the thing that you want to be doing five to 10 years from now? Yeah, I mean, if you would have asked that five years ago and would anybody have said that we are in the middle of a pandemic? I don't think so. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think five years ago, everybody lied, but... <laughs> <laughs> I, I try not to lie right now. <laughs> um, what I try to uh, do long term is really uh, teach other scientists um, how to communicate their science better. Uh, that's, I think this is the project of my heart now, um, where I want to get to. And I'm taking the first steps by, yeah promoting myself, promoting my science, promoting my communication skills a little bit more. But uh, yeah, in the end, I want to be the one that is behind the scientists and helping them to become better communicators. And um, and this is just, yeah, again, I think it's the, the perfect merge between my creative and my scientific side. So I'm not losing this uh, things that I learned during my studies. Uh, this I will still be a scientist, but um, yeah, I can also be a teacher or a coach for other scientists to improve their skills. So that's yeah. that's where I, where I do want to develop to. I'm not. Uh, I'm not so much interested anymore in staying at university and having my own research group, but uh, yeah, this new project is what my heart is burning for. <laughs> I think it's wonderful because in a way you've already, you've already contributed to the research. So it almost, you must feel at a, a certain point like, okay, I've done this. Yeah. I mean, there is still more to come, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. uh, but also, there's this this new way, and it's kind of exciting to yeah. reorient. Um, and I can just encourage people to make decisions to uh, 
yeah, what they want to do with their life. It took me quite a long time to realize that. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a scientist much longer than I than I'm a science communicator, and so um, it it. I think part of it is also this imposter syndrome thingy that we talked about before, that you never feel like you're able to do something like that. But then once you're doing it, you realize, oh, it's actually working quite fine. And um, and yeah, it's good to to just jump and see what happens. Well, so that's I'm super what I'm excited. <laughs> I'm 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 definitely excited for you. I think you're doing the right thing. If if your heart's into it, go for it. And it's a growing field. Science communication is a big, big deal right now, and it's much, much needed to fight, you know, the kinds of myths and misconceptions that we talked about earlier. So, yeah, uh, right. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Listen, um, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. It's been amazing to be able to kind of, you know, poke at you and, and ask you questions, uh, even though some of them perhaps were kind of, you know, really complex and, and curious, but that's that's the way it goes sometimes, you know? So fine. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. Thanks. (laughs) Thank you.